Good morning. Uh, take your Bible, turn to the book of Romans, uh, chapter 8, verses 31 to 39, to the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. We're going to finish uh, Romans chapter 8 today uh, and begin chapter 9, which is a totally different thematic emphasis. So we close out Paul's argument in the first eight chapters uh, with these uh, great, great verses. Let's pray this morning. Father, uh, as we uh, come to the scriptures today, we recognize that they are holy because they are your very word uh, given to the prophets and man of God of old. Uh, and we submit to uh, what you have communicated to us. And uh, thank you for the words. They are light uh, to our path. They are uh, sweet as we eat of them like the honeycomb, as David says. And we give you praise for uh, the guidance that we get through the scriptures. Might we uh, learn much and and especially about the doctrine of salvation today, I understand the greatness of how you have redeemed us. Help us to have a full-orbed, robust view of that. And we pray, as usual, for those who don't know you, might not even know that they are apart from you, might your spirit work in their life in such a profound way they come to know the Savior today. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, simple question as we uh, look at uh, verse 31 of Romans chapter 8 is this. In light of all that Paul has talked about up to this point from chapter 1, we'll review a little bit. But it, all we're going to review is based upon this one question. Can a Christian commit a sin uh, that completely uh, truncates, vaporizes, neutralizes their faith? I mean, it's over. Because you committed the one sin that was the last sin that destroyed your salvation. Can you lose your salvation? No, no. This has been Paul's argument since chapter 1. Uh, and Paul is going to close out his argument on the greatness of salvation in these verses uh, by showing you the surety of your salvation. Before we look at that, we have to go back and look at from whence he's come because he's, a, he's like an attorney building a case. So he's systematically developing the concept that uh, your salvation is secure, vault-like. Uh, and he's going to show why in, as he finishes his argument today. But we want to review the three main themes that he has talked about uh, since uh, chapter 1. Uh, chapter 1 uh, through chapter 3, uh, Paul's first concept is uh, whether you, you are a Jew or a Gentile, all people are born sinners. Uh, you do not get into the world sin-free. Uh, I've told you before, as we've gone through that, if you don't believe in the sin nature, have a child. <laughs> right? Because, amen, yeah. Whoever trains them to do sinful things. It just comes with the packaging, does it not? And you laugh because it's so true. Um, so we're all sinners. That's pretty simple. Uh, number two, uh, Jesus' sacrificial death on your behalf, coupled with your faith, justifies you in his court of law. It means you are declared righteous because of your faith in Jesus as your Savior. Uh, number three, and he, he has shown that in chapters uh, three through chapter five. Chapter five was really great. If you remember back then, it's probably about, I don't know, seven, eight months ago, where he said there, the first Adam came and disobeyed God. The second Adam, Jesus, came, did not disobey the Father, and he uh, went to the cross uh, and bore our sin. That's chapter five. Uh, third concept that he talks about is God is providentially at work in your life. That's chapter eight. So uh, through the bad, the good, all the things that happen to you, God's providentially at work, weaving all those webs to accomplish his will, all those different threads. He's building something beautiful in your life. Uh, you must trust his providence. And because he's providentially at work, Paul says, he does some amazing things. Uh, he foreknows you. Therefore, he, he elects you, predestines you to be his child. Uh, he is in his mind justified you in his court of law. And lastly, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, he glorifies you. In fact, he uses the past tense because it's as if it's already happened. 
So in light of all those great things that God has done uh, in your salvation, in his court of law, when you came to him as a believer and said, I trust Christ as the Messiah, uh, you are saved at that moment. Does he ever unsave you? No. And Paul's going to show that to be true as we look at this passage. Now, does that mean that you as a Christian always act like a Christian? Only five people are. No, no, no. Why are you at church? To grow because you probably blew it somewhere along the line this week. And this is kind of like fine-tuning, isn't it? That was Romans 6. Remember Romans 6? Where Paul says, you know, you're not slave to sin anymore like you were when you were non-Christian, doing what sin called you to do. You're like a puppet. Uh, but now, he says in uh, 6.19, you're free. Don't live that way anymore. So the command is based on the premise that you can choose to live your old selfly nature, and that's probably why you're in church, to help not do that again. Uh, in chapter 7, remember chapter 7? The thing I wish I would do, I do not, etc. That's, well, that can be like a given day, can't it be? Uh, and so Paul's going to say in chapter 8, um, it's, uh, it's still reviewing, is that as a believer, you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. You have the ultimate power. You just have to unleash that power by yielding to his, his will in your life. So in light of all that, Paul's going to summarize his argument about the greatness of justification by faith, not by works, but by faith in Jesus' work. Here's what he says in verse 31. He's culminating his argument. And if you're a pianist, uh, this is him, this is like a, a crescendo at the end of a really awesome piece that was pianissimo. You follow? Am I talking to a pianist here? Anybody? Yeah. Who did not know what I just said? Yeah, okay, whatever. Okay, the crescendos, you're building to a climax, etc. What shall we then say of these things that I've just been talking about for eight chapters? If God is for us, logical question, who's against us? Uh, he, he, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, leads to another question. Will it, how will he not also with us give us everything freely? How could he not? Uh, another question he asks, who, who will bring a charge against God's elect? He says, well, God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who then condemns? Well, Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Leads to another question, verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Answer, nothing. nobody or nothing. Then he says, well, let me give you some ideas in case you need some ideas to think about what might possibly separate you from the love of God. Will tribulation? No. No. Um, distress? No. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness? No. Peril? No. Sword? No. Just as it is written by quoting Psalm chapter 44, verse 22, he says, for your sake, we are being put to death as believers all the day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered by the godless world. He says, I understand Psalm 44. But in all of these things, he says, we as Christians are overwhelmingly known as conquerors through him who loved us. He says, for I am convinced, and if you read Greek, it's the perfect tense, which means a past act with an abiding result, which means I will never stop being convinced of what I'm about to say. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, and that's a, a Greek word for demonic beings, and there's several of them here because they're stratified in rank. He's mentioning them. So I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, another name for a demonic being, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can you lose what he gave you? No, you cannot. Short sermon, we're done. I hop, here we come. Uh, no, that's not gonna happen. Yeah, because we need to talk about this, don't we? Oh, you're almost there. So, believer's salvation is safe and secure. That's the motif of the passage. 
So how do we know that? Three lines of evidence. Evidence number one. Remember, he's like an attorney. He's going to give you the, the proof of God's love, shows you that it is perpetual. It's permanent. Notice what he says, verse 31. What shall we say then of these things? Uh, th this is terminology that you would use in a Grecian uh, court of law, that particular formula. Um, Paul loves this technique. It's woven all throughout his, uh, his books, and I isolated those in my notes if you want to find all the places where he uses that formula. He loves to build his point to an argument like to the jury. We've been talking about how does the sinner find the Savior? Well, it's not by the sinner's work. It's by the work of Christ. He said, well, let's talk about the summation of that argument, a justification by faith. What shall we say then in light of all that we've said about that? Well, he said, I have some Socratic questions. Now, why is it good to pose a Socratic question? First of all, let's ask, what's a Socratic question? Which leads to another question. Who's Socrates? Who cares? <laughs> Socrates, really known for asking questions. So if you pose a question to somebody that's asking you questions and you pose them a question, which Jesus did all the time, uh, what does it do to the person in question that you're questioning? It's getting them to think. What's our culture love to do? Scream and yell. Rhetoric has replaced reason. Has it not? Watch television. Has it not? Am I lying? I mean, screaming and yelling has replaced reason. In fact, they, they think screaming and yelling is an argument. It is not. Paul says, let's reason through this. Let me, let me ask Socratic questions to get you to think. So he, he poses a first Socratic question. Simple. It's conditional clause. If, then. Well, if God is for us, leads to the logical question, Who's against us? I mean, who could possibly be against us? If God is on your team, or the captain on your team, I mean, how could anybody possibly be against you? Now, we want to analyze the first clause of that, if God is for us, because the original Greek has no main verb there. The main verb is not the word if, God, for, or us. It's the word is. We study grammar at our church. <laughs> and I've told you this many times. Why do we study the grammar? It's the inspired word of God down to the dotting of every I and the crossing of every T. So you have to, have to ask yourself, if you were reading this in the Greek text, why did he leave out the verb, the main verb? Because in Greek it just says, God, it, God, if God for us. When you're speaking to your children, do you ever leave out verbs? <laughs> why are you laughing? Do you, at times? Yeah, you, you could think of scenarios. Paul says, I left out the main verb for good reason. This is a uh, rhetorical device of a very skilled speaker. It's called ellipsis. Ellipsis means you left out the verb to force the person who's listening to you or reading what you're writing to focus on the words that are there, not the word that's missing. It makes it very stilted. It's like a speed bump. Uh, he, he's saying, focus on the fact that God's for you, not against you nor will he ever be against you as a, as a saint. Uh, second thing, it's a conditional clause, so it has an if nature to it. But in English, we only have one kind of conditional clause. There's an apodosis and an apodosis, an if and a then, right? In those two things. And so what does Paul say? Well, he's speaking in Greek, using Greek. Greek has multiple ways to say if and then. The kind that he uses here is factual. So since it's a, it's a factual conditional, conditional say, sentence, he's not saying, well, it, it might be possible for God to be with you. That's not what he's saying. The kind of Greek clause that he uses here is a, a statement of fact, which means you could take the word if out and put the word since in. S-I-N-C-E. -E, since. So translate it that way. What? Since, since God, God is for us. Who could ever be against us? 
Does this logically mean that um, no Christian will ever have opposition? No. Because, no, well, all you got to do is look at the world and, and see that they, they totally oppose Christians. I mean, when, they, when I found out they yanked me off Vimeo, oh, yeah. huh? Yeah, I'm on. I'm gone. Somebody emailed me this week and said, I can't find you on Vimeo. You won't. Why not? Well, I'm a, I, I, I'm a, I guess I'm hateful or mean spirit or whatever the names they call you. I just, I'm just dealing with it. But God's got it, right? I don't care about Vimeo. Um, I just teach the truth of the word of God. So, thank you. I got one supporter. Yeah. So, I mean, think, think about it. So, does it mean that you'll never be, have anybody against you if you stand for morality and truth, especially in said culture? What did Jesus say? Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Jesus said, first sermon, in fact, if you go to Israel with us in February of 2020, we stand on day number two in this exact location where Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount. It's awesome, awesome to stand there overlooking the Sea of Galilee in this natural amphitheater. Verse 10, what did Jesus say? First sermon, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, not if... But when men cast insults at you, persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me, and rejoice and be glad when that happens to you, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What do they do with a person who's for morality and for biblical truth, spiritual truth? That's absolute. Well, they call you all kinds of names. When I was a young pastor, I used to write down all the names in California. Such an accepting, tolerant state. And I was born and raised there, so I know it well. But I, I used to write down the names that I was called, pejorative terms. Because if they can't handle your argument, pejorative terms is how they attack you, ad hominem attacks, correct? They don't want to mess with your arguments. So I stopped writing, I stopped writing the names they would call me at 19, and I just quit. Because a friend of mine who was the head of homicide came to me and he told me, he said, hey, Marty, look at those 19 things. Are those you? No, they're not me. Let it go, man. Jesus has got this. He knows who you are. I'm like, you are absolutely right. So I just quit keeping track of all that because they can throw names at me all day long. doesn't change who I am before Christ, correct? Same with you. I'm talking to myself up here. I'm, I apologize. So <laughs> John chapter 15, uh, upper room discourse before Christ is uh, uh, um, arrested that evening and sent to be executed. Verse 18, what Jesus say to the disciples. If the world hates you, well, wise up, guys. You know that it has hated me before it has hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Hates you. Hates you. Uh, when I was out in uh, California a couple of months ago, two, two months ago to be exact, to see my uh, mother-in-law who's still in the process of dying, um, I drove over to see an aunt, aunt of mine. My, my mother's, my grandma, my mom's mom, her, one of her sisters is still alive. I ain't seen her in 20-something years. Uh, she's a Jehovah's Witness to the core. She knows who I am and what I'm for. And uh, I went to her house to see her. And uh, it was interesting. I hadn't been in that house since I was a kid. The bushes I used to jump over were now like 30 feet tall. Uh, and so we had an excellent time together, seeing my aunt. And then before I left, I looked at my aunt and I said, Aunt Pat, would you mind if I prayed for you. You could have thrown a switch in that home. You could feel the animosity. Well, I, I, I don't know about that, Marty. I, I just don't know. I don't know if I could have you pray in my home. I really. 
And, I, and she said, well, I'll only do it under one condition. I said, what's the condition? She said, well, that you have to na- use the name Jehovah. I said, well, God has many names. Elohim, El- I mean, I, you know, he has many names. I can use Jehovah because it's a derivative of Yahweh. I, I can do that. And so I said, I will gladly, out of respect for you, use the name of Jehovah, but I'm going to pray in your home. And I did with my cousin, Brenda. But you could feel the animosity. Why? Because I'm the antithesis. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm the lost one. But I'm, what am I doing? I'm trying to build a bridge to my aunt, am I not? I prayed for God to bless her. To bless her, bless her home. I had never had a theological anything with my aunt before until that moment. And I'm 61 years old. But I could feel the animosity. Why? Because Jesus said, if they hate you, they, hate, they hated me before they hated you. Because of what you stand for. I believe Christ is God. My aunt does not. See? Anyway, moving on. Uh, what is Paul trying to say then? If, if God's for you, who's, who can be against us? Because we know that people are against you. They are. Well, R.C. Sproul puts it this way. His answer is this. Paul is not saying that if God is for a person, nobody in the world will ever rise up against that person. He says the meaning of this idiom is who can prevail against us? You get it? Who can prevail? If God is with you, he can turn opposition into awesome. Well, he's going to give you the proof of that, uh, that, that evidence of God's love in two ways. Number one, he's going to say God did not spare his son. Out of love, he sent his son to show that his love is perpetual. So notice what it says in the first clause. He, God, who did not spare his own son. How many sons did the God the Father have? One. One. Was that son born? Yes. No, he wasn't born because Jesus is eternal. I mean, he was born like on the planet, yes, he was. He did have. There was Christmas, yes, yeah, yeah. But I mean, born as he's not a created being. Is what I'm saying. Sorry, it's good. Thank you for having a discussion with me. Right, I did say born. Yes, I mean, but I mean born as a being, you know. But he's God, so he couldn't be born. He's eternal. But he was born in Bethlehem. We'll talk. Yeah. <laughs> I need to ask Socratic questions. So. You win. You're right. <laughs> I'm just saying, Jesus is not an eternal being. Or he's an eternal being, correct? So Jesus is the son, the only begotten son of God, right? One and only, eternal God himself. And God says, I'm going to send my only son, my one and only son. I don't have other ones to choose from. I mean, it's hard enough to choose one child to be sacrificed for your enemy, let alone if you just have one. You know, I'm not going to spare my one son who's part of the, uh, the Godhead. Talk about love. That's the essence of love. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, And the word became, the eternal word, the logos, the eternal word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. So here you see the eternality of God, the word, born because he came flesh. So we're both right. Amen. Praise God. Um, And we beheld, it's an interesting interesting church, is it not? Uh, And we beheld his glory. Why did we behold the glory of God? Well, he revealed it on the Mount Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. He said, I saw the Shekinah glory of who? Jesus. He had the glory of God because he's God. The glory as the only begotten from the Father. He's full of grace and truth because he's the essence of truth. He's God. But the Father said, I'm going to send my only son who is part of the Trinity to die for man's son. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, but this, but this love of God was manifested in us that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him, which means we don't live if it's not through Jesus. The preposition through is huge. He's the means by which you gain access to life. But God didn't spare his own son. Talk about love. 
Why would then God renege on his love because you committed one sin? Is your one sin as a, his child going to cause him not to love you? If you have children, if your son, your daughter does not act like your son or your daughter, like when they get into high school or college, does that mean they're not yours? Why are you laughing? What's well, debatable? <laughs> okay. This, isn't, this thing's devolving. It's very interesting. They're yours. Are they not? Like when my sister be, uh, got into drugs and everything, and my dad's a federal agent, he arrested drug cartel people. Was she not my Al Baker's daughter? No. She always was Al Baker's daughter, no matter what she did, because my dad loved her. God did not spare his own son to show you his love. Number two, God uh, did, not, uh, did deliver his son to the cross. He says, but he delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Like salvation. Um, Notice uh, the very first word there is the word but, B-U-T. It's a contrast. There's two ways to say the contrast in Greek. De or Allah. Uh, de is a soft adversative. Allah is a strong adversative. So if you really wanted to communicate your point with great power, you use the second one, Allah. That's what's here. He says, think about this. He says, God delivered him over. It was his sovereign act for us all. Uh, and it's kind of uh, not really as exact as it should be uh, if I was translating it because that over for us all is a prepositional phrase uh, which means in behalf of us. It's the Greek preposition hooper which means in behalf of, which means substitution, which means he died for me. He died for you as prophesied, not for his sin. He died as my sin substitute. You know, if somebody died as your sin substitute who was totally perfect, i.e. God, wouldn't you say that's the essence of love? Why would he ever then look down from heaven after his child and say, well, I don't love you anymore? He wouldn't do that because he died for your sin to start with. Isaiah prophesied in chapter 53, this is exactly what the Messiah would do. And interesting, because I was talking to my Jewish sister-in-law one day about these things, and she said, show me the Messiah, the Messiah in the Old Testament. I said, let's go to Isaiah 53. So we went here. After I finished exegeting it for her, she looked at me and she said, I have never heard of these things before. I said, you have now. What does it say? But he, the Messiah, the anointed one, was pierced through for our transgressions, not his. He was crushed for our iniquities, not his iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging at the crucifixion, we are healed spiritually of our sin. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all, not his iniquity, to fall on him. That drips with substitution. It's prophesied some 800 years before Christ would come that he would die for the sins of all mankind. And he did. Uh, Paul articulates this all throughout his books. Chapter 4 of Romans, verse 25. Speaking of the substitution, Paul says, he, Jesus, was delivered up because of our transgressions. He was raised because of our justification. 1 Corinthians 15, great resurrection chapter. What does Paul say? For I delivered to you of first importance that I also received that Christ uh, died for our sins according to the scriptures. What scriptures? The Old Testament text that said he would die. He did that. He died for our sins. Galatians chapter one, Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. What'd he do? He gave himself for whose sin? Not his, our sins. Why? Um, that statement there, the that, the that clause is, is stating the, the result of his giving his life for you that, you might, that he might deliver us out of this present evil age according to the will of God our Father. And he came to, to redeem you. Why did he do that? Because he loved you. And when you turn to him in faith, that love pours over your life and, and redeems you. Why would he ever look at you as a child and say on any given moment when you sin, 
you're not my child anymore. No, because the proof of his love shows that his love is forever. Uh, Calvary bloodstained cross was there and that blood applied to the life of a, of a believer um, keeps you that, in that status in his court of law. Uh, that's the proof of his love. The performance of his love keeps you in a state of being saved. Uh, notice what he says in verse 33. Another Socratic question. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? I mean, who would be crazy enough to think that that one particular charge you could bring a Christian would totally taint and tarnish and terminate their sin, their, their, their status with God? I mean, could that be possible? That somebody could come alongside you and say, you know, I've seen you in action. You say you're a Christian? Well, I've seen what you did X, Y, Z this week, and that's not Christian. And then would God then look down from heaven and say, oh, well, it's over for you. <laughs> nope. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Well, uh, he says, God is the one who justifies. Past, present, or future tense? It's not past, not future. It's present. He justifies. This is interesting. He's going to say two things about uh, what God does here to keep you in a safe status by showing you the performance of God in behalf of your salvation. Number one, he says, God is the justifier. He uses the present tense. Why? He's going to show the perpetual nature of your salvation. It's continuous. God is constantly justifying you in his court of law that you are now saved. If he's perpetually doing that, he would never stop then doing it. Therefore, you're always saved. He's the justifier. What's the justification by faith mean? I accept him as the Messiah, the Savior. When I come into his court of law and say, God, forgive me, a sinner, he justifies me by my faith and makes me a righteous person. He never reneges on that. He's the ultimate justifier. Number two, he says uh, God is not just the justifier uh, in the performance of your salvation. He's the intercessor. That's what he says. Uh, Christ Jesus is he who died, ra yea, rather, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes, past, present, or future tense. Present tense. It's continuous. He constantly intercedes for who? Us. Who's the us? Christians. Not non-Christians. He intercedes for his children his sons, his daughters. Why is he interceding? Because they, well, sometimes they don't act like our son or our daughter. I make you a challenge. Before midnight tonight, live completely sinlessly. <laughs> Did you hear me? <laughs> Go through the entire day and do not commit one sin. Are you going to do it? <laughs> if you went to sleep now, yeah. <laughs> So smart, yeah. God just put me out the rest of my life. No, that's really good. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, he has to intercede because we sin if you go back and read chapter 6 and 7. He has to intercede. This is what Jesus does. He's constantly interceding. Now, we know from the, the New Testament, uh, like Ephesians 1.20, Colossians chapter 3.1, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, correct? Why is he seated? Well, because according to, well, the book of Hebrews, he's seated because his work as high priest is done. Was there furniture inside the temple? Yes. Not inside the temple. There was a menorah to the left, a table of showbread to the right, with 12 loaves of bread for the 12 tribes of Israel. In front of you was the altar of incense, and then the curtain keeping you from the Holy of Holies. There was no chair. No high priest could ever sit down. In fact, they would tie a rope to his ankle when he went in there on the Day of Atonement, and if he happened to have sin about him and died, they could drag his body out. Did you know this? There's no furniture. No furniture. Jesus, well, here's, here's Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. It says, therefore, he, Jesus, is able to save forever, forever, uh, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He, 
He's seated because the work of redemption is done, but he's always making intercession. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus always has to stay, stay seated on that chair in the, in the heavenlies. No, because if you remember in, in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is uh, uh, stoned to death, uh, and they're stoning him, and Paul's standing there watching this happen uh, when he wasn't a Christian, and they're stoning Stephen. Stephen is allowed to see in the next dimension as he looks up. What's he see? Jesus. He sees Jesus. What's Jesus doing? Standing. Why is he standing when he's seated in Hebrews? He's showing respect for the first martyr of the church. He says, come, my son. Isn't that amazing? I get chills even thinking about it. He's the intercessor. Why is he intercessing? Well, because we sin. And he steps in and has to, like a defense attorney, say, whoa, 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 whoa. Who's bringing accusation? Well, the enemy. Where do accusations come from? Well, they come from the world at large, that it, like Christians, uh, who believe that Christ is the only way to God. And they believe in absolute morality. That, that morals don't change with culture. They are what they are because God doesn't change. So they bring all kinds of things against you. They slanderous things. That's how they handle a person they don't know what to do with. So think about Jesus. What kind of names did they call him? I, I'll give you the list from the book of John. Uh, John chapter 8, verse 41. They said he, his, he was born of an Ill, illegitimate fashion. I mean, it wasn't a normal marriage. Born out of wedlock, pejorative term. Uh, John 8, 48. He's a half-breed Samaritan. Oh, okay. Uh, John chapter 10, verse 20. He's mentally crazy. Or from our version, psycho. Okay, John chapter 7, verse 13. He deceives people when he teaches them. Uh, John chapter 7, verse 20. He's demon-possessed. Uh, there's another one. Um, John chapter 7, verse 40 comes from the intelligentsia, uh, which says, he was born in the uneducated region of Galilee. Not enlightened like we are in Jerusalem. You know, the people in Galilee, they're just not educated. See, see, what do they do with people that are godly and hold to absolutist teaching that's based on truths that never change? They use pejorative ter terms, ad hominem attacks, to diminish them, yell and scream, thinking that's an argument. Jesus said, oh yeah, they call me names. And I understand it when they call you names. I'm your intercessor. Who's, they're really bringing accusation against you? The devil. The devil brings accusation. The devil brings accusation from what we know from the book of Job chapter 1. The devil has access, and don't ask me to explain why completely. He has access to one room of heaven, one place, the throne, the, the room of like the court of law with God. Because we know he does. Because it says so in Job chapter 1. Refresh your memory. Job chapter 1, verse 6. There was a day when the sons of God, that little phrase, B'nai Elohim, means angels. Uh, there was a day when the angels, sons of God, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, Satan, also came in among them. Remember, he's not omnipresent. And the Lord said to Satan, I have a Socratic question. From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Oh, from roaming about the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Got another Socratic question. You wouldn't want God asking you questions, I'm sure. Uh, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Have you checked him out? The devil, mm -hmm, I know Job. Then Satan answered to the Lord, I have a Socratic question for you. Does Job fear God for nothing? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land. But put forth thy hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. What did the Lord do? 
Well, the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. There's only one proviso. You, do not, you cannot put your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord and summarily attacked the family of Job. Remember? Wipes his children out, flocks out, everything. His wife, loving wife comes alongside him in chapter one and says, you just need to curse God and die. That's a supportive wife right there. <laughs> Unbelievable. So who's bringing accusation against the saint? The devil. Here's the goal in your Christian life. If Jesus is your intercessor coming in when you, when you sin, and he comes in and says, okay, that was Marty. He, uh, I know, that was off the grid, but, uh, but he's my child. And I'm going to be his defense attorney and step in between uh, Satan's accusations and you, the father, and I, I'm going to defend him. The job of your Christian life is to not keep Jesus very busy with you. <laughs> did, did, you did you hear me? I mean, it's just, a, I know it's not super deep theology, but isn't it true? You don't want to show up in Jesus' presence and he's like, wow, about time you got here, man. I, I never sit down with you. No, I was always up defending you. So just park that in your brain. But when you do sin, watch Jesus do. Because you will sin. He loves you enough to step in and say, oh, the devil's going to bring uh, accusation with his little raspy voice. Have you considered what they just did? Jesus steps in and goes, yeah, but that's my child. I died for them. They're justified. Yeah, and I'm going to work in their life to do great things in their life. We're going to get past this. Devil be gone. Aren't you glad the devil, that, that Jesus is there doing that for you? Amen. Yeah. Remember what's your goal? Don't keep him busy. Okay, moving on. So God's performance shows that your salvation is going to stay, you know, status quo, not move, not change. And the last thing is his power keeps you saved. Last point, verse 35. The power of God's love verifies its permanence. What does he say? I have another Socratic question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What's the answer? Nobody or nothing. If God has you, there's no way he's going to turn loose of you. So then he throws in a whole bunch of things. This is scenarios. Could these things possibly separate you from the love of Christ? Will tribulation? No. no. Distress? No. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness? No. Peril? No. Sword? No. Nero executed Paul. Neronian ex ex uh, persecutions. Uh, they, he, he executed him. Uh, beheaded him. Did Paul who experienced the beheading under Nero loses salvation because of that. No. He, like Peter, walked right into the presence of God Almighty, his Savior. Paul says, I quote from Psalm 44, verse 22, to say, Christians are for your sake, uh, being put to death all the day long. We're like sheep counted for slaughter. If you don't believe it, start reading the news. It's just not reported a whole lot. Why? It doesn't go with the cultural mantra of the day. They kill Christians all over the world all the time. Why? Because we stand for everything that they hate. Here's a picture of how they used to get rid of Christians from the Old Testament or the New Testament age. They used in the Colosseum, they used lions. And they would uh, put Christians on stakes and set them on fire. And they would burn like a tar. And then the rest of the people were thrown out into the arena for the, uh, the, the lions to come from the subterranean caverns for lunch, for, for a spectacle. That's been going on. You, if you don't think that still happens, it happens constantly where they kill Christians left and right. February the 12th, 2015, uh, ISIS kidnapped 21 Coptic Christians, young men, looked at their IDs, found out they were Christians, took them all, put them in orange jumpsuits. You see the pictures? 
walked them down to the beautiful shore of the Mediterranean, made them all kneel, one executioner behind each man, and they asked each individual man, renounce Jesus and you shall live. I get chills even thinking about it. Those young men, to a man, said, no, Jesus is Lord. They executed each one. They finally came to a guy, when they looked at him, he was not Coptic. He was from Chad. And they, he wasn't a Christian. And so his executioner told him, you are from Chad. You are not a Christian like these other Coptic Christians. Therefore, all you have to do is say that Jesus is not your Lord and you shall live today. That young man kneeling there, having watched all those other young men die in front of him for their faith, looked at the ex executioner and said this, and I quote, their faith is my faith. Wow. Is that not just unbelievable? Did that separate him from the love of Christ? Nope. That young man, whatever his name was and is, well, he walked right into the presence of God Almighty. Why? Because nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Just ISIS never got the memo. Because God has work even in all of that. Paul says, but in all these things that happen, even persecution, in all these things, he says, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And then he throws in, let me think about some things that could possibly maybe tarnish salvation and show you how it's not going to happen. For I'm convinced. Remember I told you it's perfect tense in Greek. Past act, piting result. I'm convinced and will always be convinced that neither death, thanatos, death itself, can't separate me. And my sister died April the 3rd last year. Where is she now? With Christ. With Christ. N not even death could separate Marla from Christ. How about life? No. Angels? No. Principalities? That's a name for a demonic being, a rank. No. Uh, things present, things to come, thing, no, powers, another kind of demon. Demon, No, nor height, nor depth. This, here he's referring to, it was, it was huge in the Roman Empire, the worship of the zodiac, like horoscopes. Could, could that affect my standing with God? No, no. He says, not height, nor depth, nor any other created being will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can you lose your status of being saved and justified in God's courtroom? No. Why? God's love shows you in three ways why that's not possible to ever happen for you to lose it. You should go out and act like his child. But you should also, well, I don't know, sing to him. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount it was outpoured. There, were the, there was the blood of the lamb spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin.